nigga, praise shit. Jesus Christ, nigga, free Palestine, free Cold take Cold over. Well, finally those capitalist pigs will pay for their crimes, eh? Hey, comrades, hey! Oh, kitty! Hey, I'ma dip my balls into some thousand dollars dressing. Cause I got depression. Hey, groovy, smashing, yay, capitalism. Cause I got depression. I'ma rob my mama and I'ma spend the money on an old Chevy. Cause I got depression. Everybody know, nigga, you need to learn your fucking lesson. Nigga, I got depression. Hello. Hi. We're back. Hi. <laughs> and we have a guest today. Yay. Yes, hello. This Yay. is Reina. She's going to be joining us in this podcast episode. Do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Reina. Or, or Reina, too. That's my full name. Um, I use they, them, and she, her pronouns. I'm a student at Princeton University. Um, I study in the School of Public and International Affairs uh, with a focus on educational policy. Um, I'm also in the teacher prep program at Princeton, so my ultimate goal is to go into the educational sector, potentially as a teacher, potentially as a policy worker, um, and make schooling more equitable for all. Um, I also, I intern at the LGBT Center, so that's a fun time. Uh, and I like to crochet. Yeah, <laughs> that's my, my deal. Raina has crocheted me one shirt already. And the hat, actually. Yeah. <laughs> It's my love language. <laughs> <laughs> and she's in person. They're both in D.C. having fun. Yes. Recording from my bedroom. <laughs> Live from the studio. Exactly. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Thank you for joining us, Reyna. Of course. Um, we have a lot to get into today. And um, not that much time. Because also we're trying to go to the movies after this. <laughs> That. Um, some toy story <laughs> so why don't we why don't you tell us a little bit about the readings you've selected give us a like a one or two sentence summary of each of them um and we can like just kind of get into the Hop conversation in. yeah uh should we start with the trigger warning yeah let's start with the trigger warning first well <laughs> um the readings that we're gonna discuss today um focus on scientific racism, uh, they discuss a lot of fat phobia, and there's also discussion around eating disorders. Um, so if those are triggering subjects for you, please take care of yourself as you see fit. Mm -hmm. um, if this is an episode you need to skip, no hard feelings. <laughs> of course not. Yeah, so in terms of readings, we read chapters three and four of Amy Erdman Farrell, or Farrell, um, Farrell's Fat Shame, Stigma, and the Fat Body in American Culture. And these chapters focused on the historiography of um, fat phobia, and it takes a lens and looks at it through the colonizer, colonizer view, and it traces um, the histories of specific naturalists and proclaimed scientists who entered different indigenous spaces and started to make claims about health, wellness, and evolutionary, evolutionary um, like fitness, fitness mm -hmm. yeah, um, and worth and value. So that was kind of, that was that book. We also read um, Fearing the, one chapter of Fearing the Black Body, The Rise of the Big Black Woman, um, which talks about, um, Black women. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it kind of extrapolates similarly on yeah, the it's very similar. conversation from that other book, just talking around, yeah, colonization and the effects of like perception of black people and especially black women and curviness and etc. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's kind of the readings we did. We also listened to an episode of um, a sh a another podcast called the maintenance phase and they had a researcher come on who talks about atypical anorexia um which is anorexia in fat people basically um or anyone who's not underweight because the dsm um this is actually the only mental illness that requires a physical um qualification um, the DSM requires that to receive an anorexia diagnosis, you be at a certain BMI. So 
atypical anorexia is for anyone who is not at that specific BMI. Um, and that's not really fair because the symptoms, the severity can be the exact same and different bodies re react to starvation differently. So that's what the maintenance phase was about. It's a great episode, so I recommend that folks check it out. And as per usual, we will include like all of the readings we discuss, including the podcast, in our show notes. Um, so yes, I also highly recommend. It's like an hour long, so if you want to listen to it while you are, you know, doing things around your house. <laughs> yeah. It's a great episode. Um, well then, shall we start with the first, um, fat shame, stigma, and the fat body in American culture? Sure. Yeah, so I actually originally read this, um, in one of my classes at Princeton. Um, it was called The Racialization of Fat Folk. No, it was, no, I forget the name of the class, but it was taught by the legendary Danelle Gutara Cordero, um, icon, totally an incredible person and everyone should check out her work yeah <laughs> um, she led this class and we talked a lot about um the ways in which diet culture today is very much rooted in racism um and how scientific racism um informs modern medicine mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so did you have any I guess particular highlights from let's start with chapter three I guess do you have any particular highlights from chapter three that you um want to discuss so I can summarize chapter three a little bit more in depth basically um this chapter is called fat in the uncivilized body and uncivilized is a word that um Erdman Farrell uses to and I, I thought it was very important that that word was used um, because basically um, naturalists like George Cuvier and I'm, I feel like saying it in French accents, but I don't want to sound like... Do it! <laughs> we have an authentic Francophone among us, amongst yeah. us today. <laughs> Georges Cuvier and uh, François Bernier. Mm -hmm. uh, they were European, specifically French um, colonizers or explorers, I guess you could say, um, naturalists who entered the African continent and walked around and saw that there were so many natural resources. And they were like, whoa, like the people here don't really have to work to produce food or homes or anything. And so because the land is so bountiful, I guess they can just sit around and eat all the time. And that's what makes them fat. Um, and that's just proof that they're lazy and they can't, they can't um, evolve intellectually to pursue mm. higher things. Because they don't have to struggle in their day-to-day -day Because life. they don't have to struggle, exactly. Mm. And so in South Africa, um, George Cuvier, George Cuvier? <laughs> um, he went into um, an indigenous group called the Hoi Hoi. I think it's it's spelled K H O I K H. -I. I feel like it's one of the groups where it's like there's a tongue click, but un unfortunately I can't do it. Yeah, I saw a documentary where the per the narrator said Hoi Hoi, so I was like, okay. okay. I was in my head, I was saying Koi Koi, but I, was I guess also that's saying wrong. Koi Koi as I was reading it in my head. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's just my my reading of it but <laughs> that's good to know hoi hoi yeah so the hoi hoi people um basically george cuvier entered their space and was taken aback with the corpulence of its people um <laughs> and they picked out this one woman whose um dutch name is sarah bartman or sartier bartman um i don't know what her original name is it's not really spoken about in any of the texts that we read yeah, no one has unfortunately um i would love to refer to her by her birth given name but that's not around for us um but anyways so sarah bartman also known as venus hot and tot which is i think the hot and tot is what they they named the hoi hoi people which is like mm, yeah um i don't know what is the origin of that word i don't super know but it sounds mean 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds not cool. Um, so basically, um, George Cuvier brought um, Sarah Bartman back to Europe um, and had her on display for Europeans in like a zoo, human zoo type of situation. And people were obsessed with her breasts and her butt and just the roundness of her being. And basically, Cuvier came up with this theory that, um, that, like I said before, um, black people were just evolutionarily not there yet like a step behind yes a step behind white people or step behind developed nations Mm -hmm. and what um another naturalist or explorer colonizer guy francois bernier what he did is he um in another chapter that we read um he he basically um split the world up into different categories do you guys know what i'm talking about like racial categories yeah racial categories and defined them and then assigned value to each of these groups with black folks being the bottom of the like the lowest of the low is this where that like categorization we learned in school where there's like fuck i learned this in the five great races Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. that's the origin of that (laughs) Which, to me, as a side note, I feel like it's very interesting that um, Native Americans, Caucasians, like white Caucasians, and North Africans all get lumped into one category when they don't look anything alike. Yeah, literally. But anyways. (laughs) Like, I've met some North Africans who've been like, yeah, on, like, census things, I literally don't know what to put. They have to put white. But that's very bizarre. But they're like, I'm fully African. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I have a bug bite that's bleeding. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways, so uh, there was an obsession with Sarah Bartman's body, specifically her genitals, and um, after she passed away in her 30s, her body was... Um, c'était très grossier. How do you say that in English? Like, a very disgusting autopsy was uh, like, they yeah so in the chapter they talk they talk about have to, I mean for her lifetime she yeah. was already an object like she was literally an object mm-hmm. that people looked at like she was a circus um or like a circus animal um and so by the time that she died they preserved her body but like they took it apart and autopsied her and like took her breasts and her buttocks and her labia and preserved those elements specifically. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the rest of her body was discarded or if it was idea. just preserved separately, but they kept those items specifically so that even in death, people could look at like her her butt. <laughs> yeah. And people could look at her breasts and look at her enlarged labia. Yeah. Um, and this was on display until the 1970s. And, yeah, that's super recent. Completely inappropriate. Yeah, only into the 1970s did they return her body parts to... Oh, in 2002. Yeah, in 2002 they returned her body. Yeah, her body parts were returned to South Africa for a proper burial proceeding. Um, But, yeah, they... It, it ties into the hypersexualization of black women and this obsession with black women's genitals, their, their sexual organs, and the, um, the, the way that her autopsy was done was actually not in line with, like, um, I'm sure not in line with any medical practice. Yeah, it was not in line with any medical practice. <laughs> like, and the guy who was, did yeah. it got, like, special permission to do, like, fucked up shit. Mm. And, yeah, it was just horrible. Yeah. Horrible, horrible. I mean, it's very interesting. This example is, like, um, not necessarily the origin, but is a really blatant uh, depiction of the objectification and hypersexualization, but also vilification. Mm-hmm. of 
black women's bodies, but like bodies that just tend bodies that tend to look like what people think black women's bodies look like in terms of just like having larger larger breasts larger buttocks etc um which first of all i mean i as a disclaimer of course for all readers not all black women have the same bodies obviously yeah point one (laughs) it's point two uh it's i think i feel like there's so many podcasts or episodes that we've recorded post the cyberpunk episode that remind me of the cyberpunk episode but I feel like it reminds me of the conversation that we were having around like people are projecting their own fears and uh, mm-hmm. like disappointment in themselves onto those bodies because people, I mean, I hate, I don't want to say what these colonizers are thinking, but it's like people, or I'm assuming that Cuvier and Bernier go to South Africa, see all these women who are more curvaceous than the women that they're seeing at home and are feeling attracted but because they have already in their mind told themselves that these people and these women are not people and are less than human like closer to chimps yeah they're like animals they're like it's wrong for them to tempt me with their bodies when it's like these people are just living their day-to-day lives in their own context and they happen to look like that. <laughs> yeah, and it's their fault. Yeah, that, that you feel sexually uh, inclined because of the way that they look. Yeah. And one one thing that we talked about in Professor Vitara Cordero's class was the ways in which throughout history women have been the gatekeepers of respectability for their respective races or respective groups that they belong to Mm. or identify with and when we look to judge a race or judge a people we turn to the women and look at them and say what's wrong with you Mm. what 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 can I pick apart and men don't have that like literally (laughs) it's that's very true. Yeah, men don't get picked apart the way that women are. And, like, when you are a woman or when you are uh, female-identified, mm-hmm. you, your your actions get picked apart and are and hold implications for your entire people. Mm-hmm. And that's horrific. Yeah. So to see someone like Sarah Bartman, who was taken from her home and paraded around, like, an attraction that was taken and reflected on the entire continent of Africa. Mm -hmm. Because, like Reyna was saying, these uh, colonizers were taking Sarah as an example back to France, back to England, back to the Netherlands, and are like, she is an example of Mm -hmm. her race. Not even, like, her ethnic group, but just, like, all black people. Yeah. Like, she's an example of all black people and all of the problems that they embody. Because um, it's like, we're bringing her here so that you can also look at her and be sexually uh, aroused, but also uh, disgusted by her form. Yeah. And there's also a religious doctrine implication here as well. Like, people were... There's the sin of gluttony in in mm-hmm. Christianity, and people were were seeing basically what uh, Amy Erdman Farrell talks about is that religiously speaking, white people thought of themselves as closer to God because of their thinness, mm-hmm. which is right. mind boggling. Yeah. Like for me, thinking about it, I'm kind of like, who are you to tell me, like? who's closer to God, you know? Exactly. And also, you're God. Yeah. (laughs) You're God. Like, you're taking people out of a context where they already have spiritual practices that have nothing at all to do with Christianity. Um, And I mean, so many of these colonizers, like, that we were talking about are in the 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, and I'm not a historian, but I want to say this was after a major plague in Europe. <laughs> I want to say. <laughs> I, I want to say, please come correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the Middle Ages were not a, a hot time for the yeah, Europeans. not a hot girl time. So I feel like they were jealous, and they were really projecting, because they're like, they're, they go to Africa, they're like, these people are happy and healthy, they're and they're chilling. eating good. Yeah. <laughs> they're literally chilling and having a great time, and they're 
jealous and upset. And so they have to vilify them in some way. Yeah. <laughs> to to reinforce their notion that they are actually correct when they're like, wait a sec, it doesn't make sense as to why we're suffering and thin. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, something wanting... must be wrong. <laughs> right. Without wanting to, like, psychoanalyze them too much, it, it does, <laughs> it is very interesting to think of how, um, you know, at the time it's probably Catholic church ruled Europe. They probably have very conservative norms. You're not mm-hmm. gonna see naked women on the TV screen or at all. But the fact that they can bring a whole person that is because they're African or because of the color of their skin, they're seen as non-human and then just parade mm-hmm. their entire naked body in front yeah. of a society And that keep never their literal anything. sexual organs right. like around to be looked at. And it's, the thing is, yeah. like, a lot of the time in these indigenous cultures, breasts and buttocks were not seen as sexual, sexual organs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were functional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like people have butts. What exactly. are you supposed to do about it? It's for sitting on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and so for them to come in and be like, oh, this is a sexual thing. I remember right. I saw this, this video about how in India, women used to not, wear their saris yeah wear yeah. like bras under their saris like they used to just like wrap it mm-hmm. and then once europeans came in once england came in they were like this is too sexual like uh-huh. you're a slut you need to cover up so i think in the original context of the african continent pre- and still i feel like in a lot of cultures today it's like and for example when i was living in senegal and i don't know if you noticed this yeah. also when you were in senegal like, people in their own houses, at least, I won't say necessarily on the street, but, like, in your own house, women would be off, like, pe- women would be around with their tops off all the time. Yeah. But also, it's because there's a lot of kids around, and so it's like, you never know when a kid is going to start coming on you and trying to tug on your breast, and then you're going to keep, like, dressing and undressing. Right. Yeah. They serve a function. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was in Senegal a couple weeks ago, I remember I was sitting on my bed, and my aunt wanted to, like, try on a new outfit, and she just, like, undressed in front of me. And I was like, <laughs> But, like, it wasn't, it's not sexual, you know? It's completely normal. Yeah. And that's how things were. And that's how they still are in many parts of the world. And so I remember I, this is kind of a divergence in topic. Mm. But um, I remember I was reading this paper about, if I remember it, we can link it below, Mm -hmm. Um, but I was reading this paper about how um, homophobia came to West Africa, and how before European intrusion, the African continent was very much kind of like vibing with everyone, very queer, trans, accepting and welcoming, Mm -hmm. and once that European intrusion happened by both France and England for the most part in West Africa there there was this sense of like oh our religion says that this is nasty mm-hmm. so you're nasty yeah. please stop and it's of course there the people are compelled to um what's the word when convert they're compelled to convert mm-hmm. under the threat of violence so yeah <laughs> yeah so it's this is reminding me a little bit of the episode last week talking about um like how there was kind of a intrusion from a quote-unquote state Mm -hmm. a religious state Mm -hmm. onto the private lives of these people that existed before Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i know um ismini was talking about how like the laws were super specific of like you can't penetrate this or that with this or that that. that time blah 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 um and and so for that doctrine to come into the space right. and to criminalize and sexualize a people who were previously vibing, that is <laughs> like really sad. And we definitely feel the impact There's a today. Loss. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a loss. Yeah. I yeah. would also be curious to ask what the role of Islam was also in hmm. the criminalization of homophobia because at least a lot of people that I spoke to there would be would point to the Quran and point to Islam as oh, the really? reason why homophobia was like homosexuality wasn't accepted, but yeah. that has a much longer and complicated history too. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like I yeah, 
I would love to do more research into that because I I wouldn't know where to begin my thinking around that because also Islam has a really long history mm-hmm. in Africa much longer than Catholicism or Christianity sure. so I wonder how much like was there a period of time where there were Islam where like there was Islamic practices in West Africa for example but there was still also right like queer cool. uh yeah, cool, yeah. like yeah. did those two coexist at some point or was Islam kind of like a first wave of removing queer yeah. relations from the regular African life I don't know I'm not sure I mean I will I had a conversation when I was in Senegal uh, with my cousin, because I was just, like, scoping out. I was like, so what's it like for gay people here? Um, and she was like, oh, like, I don't know if you guys ever heard about um, Gorjigan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she was like, yeah, like, only two, you see, like, we kill them. And I was like, sheesh, like, oh, my gosh. So what Rin is saying is, <laughs> Gorjigan, it means uh, man-woman, so, yes. like, men who are effeminate. Um her cousin, she, they, she's saying that they killed them. Yeah. Basically. I will also say the cousin is, like, 16. Yeah, the cousin is 16, yeah. so we can <laughs> take that with a pinch of salt. Um, or but yes, assault. there is strong homophobia. <laughs> but there homophobia. is very strong homophobia, and it is based in Islamic doctrine. Um, I did briefly take a course uh, about Islamic history, and there, I will say that there are very sexually liberated narratives in the Quran Mm. Um, and in many cases the hmm, what do I want to say basically there there have been histories where there were there were gay relationships and there were documented in the Quran documented in the Quran oh that's very interesting um, very or like documented in Islamic history Mm. um with very like high up Islamic figures, mm. um, maybe don't quote me on any of this. I need to read more, but this is just like my distant memory of yeah. being surprised about how mm. how much sexual liberation there was. And I, I there's a um, another podcast called See Something Say Something, where um, this Muslim guy who lives in New York goes around and interviews different members of the Muslim community about various things. And he once interviewed a woman who owned a sex shop um, and they had a very interesting conversation. So maybe hmm. we can all listen to that someday. Yeah, please. It was, we'll I will send it. What's it called? Say something, see something? See something, say something. It's, it hasn't been, he hasn't been putting out that many things lately, but it's a great it's a great show for learning more about the Islamic community. Hmm. Um, and I will say, just for possess- positionality purposes, I am Muslim, born and raised. Um, FYI. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, I, yeah. Let's get back. Huh, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just saying, I love how we, you know, the original readings were focused on fat phobia, but it's so impossible to separate these history from the racialization of African people, from the exploitation of Africa, colonization, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. gender, race, all of those things are tied together. You can't really study fat phobia under just one lens. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, let's bring ourselves back on track. (laughs) (laughs) After Um, my little divergence. So, well, I, the point or the point of this particular book is just to like document that there's a really long history of fat phobia and like one one example is sarah bartman a second example at least in the united states is like the media portrayal and use of, and like weaponization honestly of fat phobia uh against women in um the in by anti-suffragists in like the early 1900s mm. um there are actually a couple of quotes that I pulled out if we want to. Yeah, we wanna of course. Read them. <laughs> let's, let's listen. Um, let me pick up. So basically to summarize, we get the origin of fat phobia starting from the racialization of black Africans and the need to attribute like laziness and like mm-hmm. sloth Dirtiness. to people. Dirtiness, but it also yeah. Be- it also becomes super gendered and becomes also a quality of like nature and just dis- like spiritual disposition and masculine, mm-hmm. like uh, being feminine enough or non-feminine enough. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even today, I feel like people who are fatter are considered more feminine, which is very interesting. Mm. But anyway, um, let me get into this quote. <laughs> so they're talking about um, suffragist uh, posters um, from the early 1900s, like in the United States. And the quote goes, um, clearly in both of these posters, the suffragists' fatness represents the ways that their bodies and their desires for votes and for power are out of control. Theirs is not the corpulence of fertile feminine matrons, but rather a fatness that is brutish and animal-like. Indeed, their insatiable appetites have made them into monstrous, mannish women. They are truly perverted. The norm. They have truly perverted the normal order of civilization. Mm. Cartoonists often draw on this image of the beastly, mannish, fat woman to mock the suffragists' argument that women needed the vote as protection against the men in their lives. How in the world did the woman on the judge cover, the suffragist reading the Equality Journal, or the angry, fist-pounding speechmaker need any protection from men? Some cartoonists carry this point even further, emphasizing the way that men diminished in size as suffragists gained power and heft. Indeed, many of the anti-suffrage cartoons explicitly portrayed white suffragists as fat black women, suggesting, of course, that the suffrage movement was pulling white women down to the lowest strata. In a postcard distributed in both Britain and the United States, for instance, we see a fat white woman standing in a a suffrage campaign table labeled Votes for Women. We only want what men have got, she spurts out from a red blotched face. Her skirt, also red, is hitched tightly across her middle, emphasizing her very big stomach and big breasts. Her face is so fat that there is no defining lines, just a fat neck straining at the shirt collar that moves upward toward her bulging, vacuous eyes. What particularly stands out are her thick red lips, a distinct reference to the blackface minstrel- to blackface minstrelsy. The suffragist's name, Miss Otterby Spanked First. This is a particularly fascinating cartoon as it explicitly connects the stigma of fatness and blackness with the women's desire to end gender inequality. So that's a juicy quote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just really interesting to see the lineage, like, that original, these original thoughts of, of Bernier and Cuvier who say, like, fatness is associated with back, blackness and fatness is also really bad because you're lazy and you're not smart and you're less uh, de- evolved as a human being, et cetera, et cetera. Even 300 years later, like from 1600s to the ni- early 1900s, those imageries are still being used as a way to vilify women uh seeking rights and equality um in their own like political life i thought it was interesting how the next part of that chapter highlights how the suffragettes the suffragists suffragettes were like no we're super feminine and then counter that with their own with their own fat phobic women (laughs) yeah it's really true it's very interesting that no one was like maybe we should stop being fat phobic <laughs> or like why yeah. are we why are we creating this imagery that uh like we're all essentially we're all agreed that fat black women are the worst basically and so we're just gonna continually be like that's not us in fact that's you to the other side without even questioning the the notion that like maybe black women are human too yeah <laughs> maybe the they the, also deserve the right to vote yeah maybe yeah. the ways that we're vilifying other people should be questioned Generally. (laughs) Yeah. I also, actually, in a Princeton class I had also taken, we, I forget which course it was, but we talked about, like, in the early 1900s, well, early into mid-1900s, there was, because of the influence of eugenics, there was just, like, this explosion of respectability, um, respectability politics, more or less, especially as it comes to self-representation. So in the article, or in the, the chapter in this chapter that talks about the suffragettes. Um, and as MC was saying, they, they're they like, no, we're not, <laughs> we're not fat black women. We are all petite, feminine, white women. And um, so that sort of like self-representation of like, no, no, we are in the good category mm-hmm. is like spills into all aspects of life. So in that chapter, they talk about how even at Spelman, which is a historically black college mm-hmm. for women, um, 
in the early 1900s, like students at that college were not allowed to gain, quote unquote, gain weight or indulge in food boxes sent from home so as to not fall into the category of the like vilified black, fat black woman. Mm-hmm. And there are so many other ways in the course that I took, they were talking, they had mentioned like these better baby contests, which is also very much just like derived from eugenics. And it's like essentially people would send in photos of their babies and then like Sears, for example, like Sears would put on a better baby contest. So the, whoever, I don't know, whatever the department for better babies at Sears, somebody would like go through all these photos and pick like, what is the best looking baby? <laughs> and so that was a really important, like it was really important to those communities to be able to demonstrate approval yeah. from the larger society through yeah. these like respectable ways of presenting themselves. I'm thinking so even I'm, just uh, from the perspective of dress, like assimilation, that's basically what you're describing. Assimilation mm-hmm. also means adopting like customs, like ways of dress and ways of eating. Being that those, I mean, I guess if you live in America, if, you, if you're like in the East Coast and it's super cold, you might want to eat a lot of bread all the time because it's cold. But in way of dress, you're probably going to wear more jackets than if you were in Brazil, for example. But mm. you're going to end up adopting, you know, clothing that was tailored for white bodies or for European bodies. And you're just, you're never going to be seen as part of it if you, mm. like, cl- I feel like clothing and fashion is a very good example of how this assimilation actually can become, like, a sense of, like, othering. Because then mm. you're constantly trying to change your body for you to fit into those norms. Into, into the ways clothes. that they dress themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful, ta- like, segue into our conversation about eating disorders. Because my thinking is... So what happens when you find yourself in a black fat body? Like mm-hmm. what do you what do you do if everyone is just here like shitting on you, you know? Like what do you, what happens, you know? It's it's an existence where you are constantly in a state of dis people disapproving you. You are constantly in a state of being told to edit yourself and assimilate yourself like you're saying MC. And you're constantly seeing messaging, like what we were talking about with the suffrage movement, of people vilifying, sexualizing, and then somehow removing sexuality from your body. Like somehow, like there's this simultaneous hypersexualization of black women, and then also this idea that black women are manly and somehow Mm -hmm. less feminine. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of. You can't win. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I think they touched on it a little bit in one of the readings, but it's like there are a number of stereotypes that are levied against black women in terms of, like, the Jezebel, who's hypersexual, the Mammy, who is asexual and is, like, a a only cares for other people. Um, And there's surely a number of other different stereotypes that um, we we don't need to get into today. But, um, yeah, I mean... Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, so we can talk a little bit about the maintenance phase episode. Um, They talked a lot about the science behind eating disorders and how one stat they gave was that only 6% of people with eating disorders are actually underweight. So when we think of eating disorders in the media, what we consume is this idea of a emaciated white girl who just can't bring herself to eat anything, you know, like that's, that's the idea with eating disorders. And I do want to note that knowing that you have an eating disorder is a privilege, receiving treatment is a privilege, and it implies access to medical treatment and also access to, or distance from whatever trauma might have helped or might have contributed to the cause of the eating disorder. Um, But one thing that they talked about in that episode was that eating disorders have a higher rate of occurrence in communities that are more traumatized. And this is this is more inter- intersectionally identified folks. And so in communities of color, there are eating disorders are rampant. And in this in the world today, there are a million and one diets and 
regimens or lifestyle changes or whatever that preach an ability to fix you or remove you from that lowly fat black body that has been reinforced for centuries so with eating disorders they it's really really it sucks um, <laughs> that's my that's my conclusion no, no I think it's also it's really interesting in the podcast I mean you kind of touched on it before yeah. but they talk about the notion of atypical anorexia or mm-hmm. a, atypical anorexia or atypical, atypical anorexia which there's no atypical bulimia technically in the DSM atypical anorexia falls between under the categories of OSFED, which is other specified eating or eating disorder. Mm. Um, so atypical anorexia is not even seen in the same category as regular, quote unquote, regular anorexia, even though behaviors are the exact same, criteria are the exact same, um, health impacts or health symptoms are exactly the same. It's just about the weight. Mm-hmm. And one thing they talked about in the episode was that when, when you're... Um, Different bodies react to perceived starvation or actual starvation in very different ways. Mm -hmm. Some bodies will drop that weight and some bodies will slow down the metabolism exponentially and grab onto every single calorie that comes in and make you gain weight. And that process of, of diet cycling, weight cycling, over time, you just end up gaining weight and... So it's kind of, and that because, yeah, weight it's gain, kind of like you're you try and lose a little weight, and then because your body is perceiving it as starvation, it gains more, exactly. and then you get more upset, and so you try and get, lose more weight, mm-hmm. but your body, of course, your body, your body is only doing an evolutionary process. Yeah, and it's like well, now we're even more starved, so hold on to more weight. Yeah, and two books that I recommend, um, if folks are interested in learning more about eating disorders and the science behind them. Um, there is um, Health at Every Size. That's a great book. And um, Intuitive Eating. That's another book that talks about... Um, it's based in research and it talks about um, how to break out of the cycle of this... That Sharon's describing of wanting to lose weight, losing a little, your body being traumatized. Because our bodies are evolutionarily designed to keep us alive yeah and it's gonna pull out all the stops Mm -hmm. to keep you alive and and it doesn't care what you look like literally (laughs) yeah our our bodies are not meant to be aesthetic you know yeah Yeah. i mean even the definition of um atypical anorexia because they said it was based on bmi like even the definition of bmi wasn't bmi also created by one of those naturalist types who were yeah yes it's racist bmi is also definitely a racist and eugenics uh inspired project Um, and even the fact that it's called atypical when, as you said, only 6% of people who actually suffer from anorexia of eating disorders, period. Oh, eating disorders, period, have, uh, are underweight, are underweight. So it's like, actually this, let's assume that it's it's the same percentage across in specifically in anorexia. It's like people who are presenting atypical are 94%. Yeah. They're the vast majority. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't and know it's actually, 6%. Wow. I know. Isn't that very interesting? Yeah. it's So, and that's that's the thing. When we think about eating disorders, we think of underweight people, but that's not the reality. Mm-hmm. And so to think about, um, <laughs> I see you cringing. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, so I bad. I just can't believe like the media and the fashion industry got us to buy that. It's yeah. just yeah. such a propaganda job. Mm-hmm. Literally propaganda. And the the real thing is that this idea is medically enforced yes. in insurance companies. Insurance companies will use your BMI to determine your eligibility for treatment if you are seeking treatment for an eating disorder. Mm. So when when someone who is not underweight, which statistically speaking, that's, that's, that's the most likely situation, mm-hmm. is seeking treatment, they're most likely to get lumped into this category of OSFED, otherwise specified eating, feeding and eating disorder, and more likely to be taken less seriously mm-hmm. or more likely to have their coverage cut um, because they aren't 
fitting into this category that is originally racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's very interesting also in the podcast, they talk about how even, like, as you said, there's, like, hurdles of different privileges that you have to get over. One, are you even out of the space that is inspiring or creating mm-hmm. this trauma that is uh, being presented as, as an eating disorder? Are you... Do you even have access to um, medical professionals that mm-hmm. you could go to treatment? Um, do you have the the correct body type that they will um, categorize you, you? Yeah, take you seriously and treat you. And then also, as it comes to um, the treatments in and of themselves, in the podcast they point out that like there's really no cultural awareness around essentially like treating non-white people yeah. because the the foods that people are eating at home especially if you're coming from like a not white american context they just don't like the the treatment um specialists don't have any way to categorize them yeah i mean m- american dietitians are widely white mhm and i remember they gave the example of like in treatment you might eat like quinoa or like <laughs> Like, <laughs> random stuff that, like, white people eat that no one else eats. That no eats. one is eating. <laughs> and it's, like, it, they mentioned in the podcast, like, I don't know if this is generally across the board or in one specific example, like, one treatment facility, they were, like, just don't eat Mexican food. Yeah, that was... The, they were Which is, like, about, what? <laughs> yeah, they were talking about um, a dietitian's training. Mm. And the dietitians are being trained in racist ways oh to be, like, just, like, categorically like don't eat this country's food yeah as if they're which first of all what second of all it's like (laughs) you don't think that there is any food that is healthy at all coming out of this country specific country yeah once you totally strip mexican food from its origin and create chains out of it and are trying to sell it to a bunch of people in this like yeah rebranded because their perception yeah their perception of mexican food is like taco bell yeah exactly yeah that's how you destroy, like, two things at once. Two birds, one exactly. stone. Two birds, one stone. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then imagine, of course, if even if you have the option to go in somewhere for treatment, when you get out and you have to continue living your life, and it's like, well, the people in my house are Mexican, and they're making Mexican food. Like, that's another level of privilege to be able to... Uh, provide yourself a different food than mm-hmm. the things everyone around you is eating. Yeah. That's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And the person who they interviewed, I'm blanking on their name, um, in the Maintenance Phase episode, had a very interesting story of starting out receiving, going to treatment in one of those classic eating disorder bodies that was very emaciated underweight, and then returning to treatment as an adult after having identified as a fat person. Mm. And they talked about... At one point, the person talked about, um, she was saying that she was inpatient in the hospital, and the provider was like, why are you here? And she was like, oh, I want to get better, I want to recover, and the the provider was like, well, why are you, like, here, here, like, in this hospital? Like, look around at all the other patients, and look at you, like, maybe you shouldn't be here, Um, which is horrific. And completely inappropriate and so invalidating and would likely be incredibly triggering for someone with an eating disorder. Yeah, it's very Um, invalidating. Yeah, and this whole idea of we're getting healthy, like what healthy equals thin, question mark. And so these people, people with eating disorders, you can end up in a thin body, but if you menstruate, not be able to menstruate Mm -hmm. anymore because your body is in such shock. Or have orthostasis, where your body isn't able to properly pump blood throughout your body as you change from like, a seated yeah. to a standing position. Your body can't regulate its blood pressure and stuff, so you'll just be, like, passing out because yeah. you stood up. But you're thin, so it's okay, and you're healthy, you know? like Healthy as according to their definition. Exactly. Because you look, you quote-unquote look like a healthy person. Exactly. And um, do you want to read this quote on... Yeah. Yeah. So there's this Twitter thread (laughs) that I read a really long time ago at some point in, I feel like 2019 or 2020, that is talking about healthism. Um, So let, let me just get into the quote because they explain everything. So healthism is the preoccupation with personal health as a primary, often the primary focus of the definition of an achievement of well-being. 
a goal which is to be attained primarily through the modification of lifestyles with or without therapeutic help. While the etiology or origin of disease may be seen as complex, healthism traits... uh, Attributes? I think it's supposed to be attributes. Healthism attributes individual behavior, attitudes, and emotions as the relevant symptoms needing attention. Healthists will acknowledge that the health problems may originate outside of the individual, but since these problems are also behavioral, solutions lie within the realm of individual choice. Um, And there's other things, but I wanted to point out also that there are a number of issues there yeah in the notion of individual choice because there's a lot of social constraints against choosing the fa- the foods that you eat because of the context you're in the foods that you can afford yeah etc <laughs> etc et um but all of this like just even the notion of healthism is very much predicated on this like neoliberal understanding of personal responsibility mm-hmm. that is also i mean it's such a there's so many like there's so many layers to it because kind of like we discussed with BMI it's like somebody created this notion that if you are a 35 on this BMI scale, which who even came up with this, it, you, then you are obese, quote unquote, or like you're overweight. And that, or and then therefore that is a problem, which you need to solve individually because it's your issue. And you chose to be that And way. you chose and are still choosing to be fat. Like there is some socially constructed deviancy that like you are fat and that is a problem and that's your fault and it's on this scale which we are going to say is unbiased because somebody created it in 1700 or whatever and now you need to fix it (laughs) yeah (laughs) literally how is this different from when they were looking at fat like fat black africans and being like oh it's because you're lazy like this is it's the same it's the same the exact same yeah it's literally the exact same and that placement of personal responsibility when people actually buy into that cuz because they're the 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 diet industry is a multi-billion dollar industry yeah. and it completely it places blame and makes people buy the idea that it's their fault for being fat and that they have the power to change it mm-hmm. by buying this new yeah through, through consumption. this consumption yeah and it's it creates a market. It's a market, yeah. Mm-hmm. Capitalism. Yeah. It all comes back to capitalism. <laughs> There's a part in the maintenance podcast where she was like, oh, I understood, like, food to be gendered, like, whole fat milk was for my dad, and then skill milk was for my mom. Mm-hmm. You just yeah. doubled the, the milk market. Exactly. Size. Yeah. Because now people are like, I can't drink fat, I can't drink milk with fat in it. <laughs> because I am a woman, and... I need to maintain my my womanhood. I need to. I need to be thin. This then, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's people. And it's very no, no, no. Say people. This diet culture industry has convinced people that they are the problem, Mm -hmm. whereas the reality is that the industry is the problem. Yeah, exactly. And bodies they they said this in the maintenance phase episode but bodies occur on a bell curve mm-hmm. you know some bodies are bigger some bodies are born that way some bodies are smaller and that's okay um and yeah. also there's so many societal reasons as to why people are the way that they are for example yeah. like in the united states uh, i there's food deserts yeah there's food deserts where people can't get access to fresh produce and like literally the way that american society is set up is so that you have to be really privileged and live in a really nice area if you want to have healthy food. And that healthy food is really expensive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very interesting also in this article or in this, like, yeah, in this book or the Twitter Twitter thread that's talking about this book, um, also tapping into the idea of the market, it's like healthism or this notion treats people as either, like, sick, and by sick in this context it's, like, obese, or potentially sick. So it's like either kind of as using the milk as an example, it's like either you're already obese or if you don't like constantly check yourself, you're going to be obese. And so either you're um, either you're in the market of trying to get rid of weight or you're in the market of trying to remain thin. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that really struck me was the part where she was talking about how she had this eating disorder and the, I don't know, someone in her school was like, you can't keep going on like this. And she said, I was really pissed because I was a top student. I was like getting mm-hmm. all the good grades, doing the all ex- extracurriculars. And I don't, 
I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I don't talk about this much with my friends, but I don't know what percentage of women have experienced eating disorders. But if you had, it's crazy how just all mind-consuming that it is. It's yeah. literally all you can think about. And I was looking at these girls at Princeton. Like, thank God when I got to Princeton, I was a lot better. But these girls at Princeton go through all four years of college, excelling in everything while mm-hmm. having having to eating struggle disorder, with a, uh, an eating disorder. And I I just, it, how do you do that? How do you yeah. manage? I think one of the biggest diagnostic criteria for identifying that someone has an eating disorder is when it impacts their quality of life. And when your brain is starved, it's true that all you can think about is food. It is all consuming. And in a society that places um, the utmost value on thin bodies and on academic achievement, that becomes your world. Mm -hmm. And that becomes your obsession. And it closes you off to social things. It closes you off to like other intellectual pursuits. It closes you off to the world. It closes you off to your life. Mm -hmm. And it's literally like you can't think straight. Like you can't think about anything other than like, oh, I got to go do my readings and then I got to hit the gym. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like it's, it's all consuming. And it's, and the diet culture and the diet industry enforces this as being good because it's like, oh, you're health conscious. Like mm-hmm. you're just, you're just, you're, you're doing your best. And um, the book Intuitive Eating actually defines different types of dieters Um and I'm trying to remember all of them off of the top of my head, but one of them is the professional dieter, quote unquote. Um, and that is a person who just appears to be health conscious, but is constantly in some form of endeavor to shrink their body. Mm. And that has become basically a profession. Yeah. Um, I feel like a lot of people fall into that category. A lot of people fall into the professional dieter category. Mm-hmm. And... The issue is that we don't recognize these things to be disordered. We enforce them as being, oh, this is great for your health. This is a lifestyle change that is good for you. When, like, me sitting down and having a cookie for dessert, that's not going to, like... It's not going to kill you. It's, it's not, not going to radically impact my weight. It's yeah. not going to do anything. It's just going to be me enjoying a goddamn cookie. You will have a little serotonin. Yeah. <laughs> a little serotonin. Um, but, yeah, it's... It's very, this this obsession with preserving the thin body. This or is, it's, it's We almost, teach women to shrink themselves. Oh my God, <laughs> it's true. It is true. It's almost like, I remember I was talking to a friend about eating disorders, and she was telling me that it's almost like a religious experience because you, this thin body is this ideal that we venerate Mm. that we dedicate ourselves to that we obsess over and that we want to be as close as possible to it and it it seriously does take over everything Mm. it's it's horrific yeah it's also interesting how maybe it's because we talk more I, i talk more about it with other women but this is also something that seriously affects men yeah absolutely it's very true yeah in the in the podcast they were talking about like other eating disorders uh, yeah and and this this uh pressure by a lot of men well eating disorders kind of present in different ways amongst different populations but they were talking about for a lot of men it presents as like the need to be constantly like swole (laughs) or like really muscular and like always in the gym but you have to restrict your eating so as to keep down your percent body fat and then you're also tiring yourself out all the time because you're working out a lot just hitting that protein i feel like it's beneficial (laughs) for you to have all these people with mental health and eating disorders at a functional level like Mm. you want people who don't know that they have eating disorders like that's the Mm. ideal situation because then they can keep buying your products and they don't Mm -hmm. actually stop being productive once you reach the extremes and you have someone who's like bad eating disorder because now you can't stand up 
then mm-hmm. it's a problem. Then it needs to be deal- dealt with. That's really the only definition of an eating disorder. But their interest is to keep everybody kind of on this level of dissatisfaction, but still functional in their point mm-hmm. of view. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm interested to talk about um, this. I'm, I'm gra- grasping onto the word dissatisfaction that you just used, MC. Um, how do we find satisfaction in our bodies? Like, I'm thinking about the body positivity movement and how that is very much dominated by white bodies, mm-hmm. um, by white, thin, and thin adjacent bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, but how, how, how can we as young people find satisfaction in our bodies? What does that look like for y'all? That's a great question. I feel like you want us to answer? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. <laughs> um, I feel like for me, I'd, I've been thinking a lot, and maybe it's also because of Twitter and stuff. I think I I think a lot now on just the notion of body neutrality. Mm-hmm. And, like, there was, there is, of course, this, like, negative body dysmorphia, essentially. And then there's the body positivity movement, which is, like, you must celebrate your body. Yeah. And then there's the body neutrality um, idea, which sits in the middle, and it's just, like, your body is there, and it's doing what it needs to do, and it's just that. <laughs> like... Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. What about for you, MC? Yeah, I'm with you, Sharon. It's it's just, what is the other option? Because if you want to have body positivity, you need to attach yourself to some ideal definition of beauty. And that mm-hmm. definition... I feel like it's so still... True. Yeah. It, it's still based in this notion of, like, yeah my body is beautiful or yeah just this notion of beauty and also putting value in yourself because you value your body regardless of what it looks like but it's like my value isn't from my body either way period yeah (laughs) yeah Sharon said it all I love that what about you Ray? um I think finding satisfaction in my body it's been it's been a journey for sure um because like many folks, I was raised in an environment that worshipped the thin ideal. So to not be that and to acknowledge that I'm not that and still nourish my body and still continue to show up to take care of my body that that society has told me is wrong. And like I will acknowledge like I'm not I I wouldn't say that I identify as a fat person like I still do benefit from thin privilege so I will put that out there um but there's still a lot of pressure to 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 be thin so in terms of body acceptance I will say that I I I also ascribe to the body neutrality um position because I I like to think of food as this is a way this is a means to to my movement throughout the world. Mm. This is a means to nourish my body that allows me to go out into the world and do what like I need to do. Like all things need fuel, exactly. myself included. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was teaching a class today um, to these kids, and we were talking about photosynthesis and how plants need food, and we need food. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a tangent. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it's... It's true. I this sense of satisfaction is almost it's almost a protest of sorts um, against this this all this bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I wish we had more time because I would love to hear also like how this presents itself in the Brazilian context just because we are, of course, inundated with American culture. Yeah. So I'm very interested to know, like, just how these n- notions of, like, body aesthetics and stuff work outside of the typical Anglo-Saxon or European, like, Western, American, Western context. But um, I think we're you coming to our time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that in the next episode. Exactly, exactly. Well, is there any, like, what takeaways would you like to leave the readers with? <laughs> um, let's see. I, be kind to your body. Remember what your body allows you to do in this world. 
remember all the good that it allows you to do. Ultimately, it's a vehicle for your soul to move about the world and do some good. Um, so yeah, take care of it. I always think of early on in, in my recovery, I was thinking about my body in terms of like a pet. So like you feed your pets and you take your pets for walks and you give your pets water. So if, if it's, if it's challenging for you to take care of your body, think of it as another being who is inherently valuable Mm -hmm. and needs care. Um, yeah. And that you could be grateful to for the work that they do do for you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's my, that's my ending tidbit. That's really what they meant when, you know, God said your body's a temple, not this like Period. no tattoo stuff. No, yeah. they just meant like care for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it houses things that are important, <laughs> which is you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. And sometimes the temple looks different because it has a tattoo and that's chill. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's a cute temple. I'm trying to yeah. make it cute. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, thank you, listeners. <laughs> yeah, I've, thank you for having me. I've been, I feel so honored to finally grace the stage of Hot Girl Theory. And you're always welcome back. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. This was a wonderful episode. Yeah. Let's um, wrap up here. I want to take a picture after, but we can wrap it up here. Okay. Bye. 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 <laughs>